The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. There's a passage where the Buddha talks about how the true dharma is going to disappear. And he says it's like the disappearance of genuine money. He says, true money disappears when counterfeit is made. In the same way, true dharma is going to disappear when counterfeit dharma comes. And it's interesting to think about what he's saying there. Um, it's not the fact that true money actually totally disappears when counterfeit comes out. It's simply, one, our trust in the monetary system starts going down. You have to check everything very carefully, you know, front and back, and hold it up to the light and scan it to make sure that it is genuine money. And two, after all, pe people get used to the counterfeit, and they might run across some genuine dharma and think that that's counterfeit. Um, so there's a definite problem. And he forecast that this was going to happen in the future. Well, I think it's already happened. Um, the true dharma, the concept of true dharma has pretty much disappeared. You go into dharma centers and they say, well, it's, it's all one, it's, we're all teaching the same thing. Um, you go to academia and you talk about the concept of true dharma, they will drive you out. It's all about, well, this group said that and that group said this and we're not going to be passing judgment on what actually works and what doesn't work. We're just going to be telling you the history. As someone once said, um, when it was proposed in a Jewish university that they teach the Kabbalah. And the, the, the director said, well, we can teach the history of Kabbalah, but we can't teach Kabbalah because in academia you don't teach nonsense, but you can teach the history of nonsense. <laughs> and it sounds nice when we say, okay, all, it's all the same Dharma and we want to be peaceful and tolerant of one another's versions of the Dharma. But there comes a point where you have to ask, you know, do different versions of the Dharma give the same results? And John Cha made an example. He said, and we could all decide, everybody in the room could agree, we take a handful of sand, and we said, come from now, and we're going to call this salt, okay? And everybody says, okay, we're going to call this salt, and we're all agreeing. Problem is, if you put the salt into your curry, is it going to get the result that salt would give? And the answer is no. I mean, some teachings give certain results, and other teachings give other results. And so we have to think about that as... We tend to be consumers of lots of things, and when we come to the Dharma, often we become consumers of the Dharma. And we like to think that, well, we can take what we like, what appeals to us, what resonates with us, um, what we feel good about, maybe, it's, and it's okay because it doesn't make any difference in the long run. And I'd like to raise some questions about that. Um, in particular, I'd like to talk about a, a teaching that you hear often, which is that, in fact, it's, you hear it so often that there's actually a joke about it, you know, what did the Buddha say to the hot dog vendor? And because monks are not allowed to tell jokes about the Buddha, I won't tell you the rest of the joke, but you probably know the joke. <laughs> but as by way of introduction, I'd like to tell a story that happened in Massachusetts back in 1990 when John Sawat was leading a retreat there. And after a couple of days, we started having group interviews. And during one of the interviews, there was an American salesman who was brand new to the Dharma, brand new to the practice. And he said to John Swiss, you guys would have a really good religion here with Buddhism if only you had a god. Because in that way when meditation started getting difficult, you, know, you would have a sense that there was some outside force supporting you. And there was a Thai woman in the, in the interview group who knew English very well, and she bristled when she heard a John Swat referred to as, you guys. <laughs> and, and part of the etiquette of being a translator is you know what to translate and what not to translate, so I didn't translate that part of his, the guy's message. But John Swat had a very interesting response. He said, if there were a god who could arrange that when I take a mouthful of food, everybody in the world gets full, I would bow down to that god. Now, that's stuck with me ever since. And for the obvious reason, one, it's, it's kind of a, a very clear 
a very elegant refutation of the idea that there is an all-merciful, all-powerful creator. You know, if, if God were really all-merciful and all-powerful, he wouldn't create a system in which everybody has to have an individual stomach and by my taking food, someone else is deprived of food. And often when I take food, other beings are deprived of their ease, their, their, their leisure, some beings are deprived of their life. You think if there really were an all-merciful, all-powerful God, he designed some other way of doing this. You think of Mark Twain's comment about the fly. It's an example of a very intelligent design. All intelligence, no compassion. He goes on and on about what, you know, what flies do to people. They get in the wounds, they make you know, wounded soldiers miserable, they make mothers miserable as the, the poor sick children are being you know, you know, bothered by flies. And he went on to say that if a human being had designed the fly, he wouldn't want his name attached to it. <laughs> Whereas we're expected to, to praise the, the creator of the fly every weekend. Every weekend. Um, and in terms of you know, imagining a better way of living, Kurt Vonnegut has a really nice one. Have you ever read The Sirens of Titan? He's got this section where they're going to the planet Mercury, and planet Mercury in his vision is this large crystal, honeycombed. It has one end of the sun and the other end, of course, to outer space. And because of the extreme temperature differential, the crystal hums. And there are these beings who live inside the crystal. They're called harmoniums. And they're shaped like little kites, and they have suction corners on each of the suction cups on each of the corners. And they go through the crystal, and they find a spot where the vibrations are really nice, and they feed off the vibrations. And then they send messages telepathically to one another, and each one has two messages. The first message is, here I am, here I am, here I am. And the other one is, so glad you are, so glad you are, so glad you are. Here's a, here's a world where beings don't have to feed off of other beings. That's one reason why that comment by John Sweat is stuck with me. The other one is that it's very relevant to an, an issue that you hear often, a teaching that you hear often attributed to the Buddha, which is that we are all one. You know, we are an, an interconnected, organic whole, and we, if we learn how to appreciate that wholeness, we will behave well towards one another, and therefore this, integra this integrated wholeness is something that's worth celebrating. Um, the one time the Buddha was asked you know, whether the world was one or whether it was a plurality, he said both of those views are extremes that he avoided. And he doesn't say why in that particular passage, why he avoided those extremes. But there are a couple of other passages in the canon which give an idea. One is when he talks about the various states of oneness that can be attained in, in meditation. There's one that he says which is the non-duality of consciousness, where consciousness is one with its object. And he said this is, a, you know, this is the ultimate state of oneness that you can attain in meditation, but it is a fabricated state. The people who attain this they still, that state itself still undergoes inconsistency, stress, therefore it's not self. So when you attain a state of oneness in your meditation, it is not awakening, it is simply a state of concentration. It's another fabricated state which has some inherent stress in it. And that too has to be gone beyond. Another passage is where he talks about various views of self that people can, can hold to. And the one which identifies your, your true self is the cosmos. You are one with the cosmos. He said this is a particularly foolish teaching. And the reason why he says it's foolish, he says, is wherever there's this, where there is the sense of self, there also has to be the sense of what belongs to the self. Now, if you're one with the cosmos, the cosmos should belong to you. And you can do anything you want to it. Now, can we do that? Go park a car over in Planned Parenthood? <laughs> Go cut down your neighbor's tree. You don't really own these things. This is not really yours. So the concept of trying to extend your concept of self to cover the whole world, or saying that you are part of this larger oneness, the Buddha says, 
creates difficulties. I'll point, I'll point around it for a moment why. And he, even though he didn't say why he rejected the extremes of the world as a plurality or the world as a oneness, he said the way he, object, the way he avoided those two extremes was through dependent core arising. The teaching on dependent core arising, you know, the various factors that lead to suffering. Now, there's an irony here because many times we see dependent core arising explained as this is the Buddha's explanation of our oneness and interconnectedness of all the beings in the world. There's a double blurring of distinctions with that, though. The first one is oneness does not necessarily mean inter interconnectedness. And when you're interconnected, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're one. Um, if we're a oneness, everything would work for the good of everybody in the system. But you look at the system, what we have here, and as the Buddha described causality, he, and it's one of his more interesting passages, is where he talks about, it's kind of, a, kind of like a catechism for newcomers. You know, what is one, what is two, what is three, what is four, what is five, all the way up to what is ten. Um, and you know, some of the things you'd expect. What is four would be four noble truths. What is eight, eightfold noble path. The unexpected one is what is one. And the Buddha says, we all being subsist on food. And this is his way of, of introducing the topic of causality. It's because we're feeding on one another. It's either physical feeding or mental, emotional feeding. This is how we exist. And so, you look at the picture of you know, our interfeeding like this. To be interdependent is to intereat. We feed off of one another. And it's not a pretty picture. Now, in later versions of de describing dependent core rising, they started using images like Indra's net, where you have this large net with jewels at each interstice of the net, and the jewels are reflecting the light of all the other jewels. Or there's the lamp in the middle of the room surrounded by mirrors, and the mirrors reflect not only the lamp, but also the, the light coming off of the other mirrors. It's, it's a very different image for what's going on in the causal process. Now you have to ask yourself, which one is actually closer to the facts of how we live? And do we sit around just emitting light and reflecting light? Or do we feed off of one another? We're actually involved in feeding all the time. And this is our way of inter interacting. Um, and you look at the, look at the causal systems. I'm, there's a secret we've been keeping down in San, northern San Diego County. We've been looking at the weather maps for the rest of the country, and it's been a pretty bad summer for the whole country, except for northern San Diego County. <laughs> Somehow the interconnected system of weather has been working for our, our benefit. <laughs> <laughs> We've been having a cool summer, we had rain, we had all kinds of really nice weather down there. And so we don't want to let anybody else know. <laughs> Even though we're all part of the interconnected system, the fact that you've got really hot weather up here in San Francisco, we're the beneficiaries. This is how these systems function. It doesn't work for the benefit of everyone. So the fact that we are interconnected doesn't mean we're one. The system works for the good of some, but not for others. And what we would like, of course, is we could tweak the system somehow that it works for the good of everybody, but so far I haven't seen any system that works that way. Um, the second distinction that gets blurred is when the Buddha is talking about dependent co-rising, there's, there's interconnectedness on the inner level and interconnectedness on the outer level. Um, and in, dependent co-rising is on the inner level. It's basically your experience of the world, how suffering, which is something, your suffering is something you experience directly, nobody else can, you can't take it out and show it to anybody. You can describe it, but you, nobody else can feel what you're feeling. At the same time, this suffering is coming from things that you experience within as well. Your intentions, your attention, your perception, your sense of the world as it comes in through your sensory contact. 
you probably as a child, there came a point when you realized, you know, the way I see purple, or the way I see blue, does that, do other people see the same thing that I see? And you can't take it out to show to anybody. And you sort of, gee, isn't that weird, and you let it go. But what the Buddha is saying is, there is something that really is important, which is that we, we suffer. We suffer, however, because of things that we experience directly in this way. So when he's talking about suffering, he's talking about that part of your experience. When he's talking about dependent co-arising, he's talking about that part of your experience that you don't share with anyone else. Now the good news of all this, of course, is if you bring knowledge to that part of your experience, you can put an end to suffering, the suffering that you feel. You bring knowledge to the way you fabricate things, you bring knowledge to the way you perceive things, and you'll find that okay, you can put an end to the suffering that you're experiencing. And this is why awakening is something that each of us has to work at for him or herself. And once it's experienced, only we can experience it for ourselves. So when the Buddha is talking about dependent co-arising, he's not talking about our interrelationship among, with other beings. He's talking about what's going on inside us and how we can sort that out. Now he's not saying that we are not interconnected at all. We do have interconnections, but it's in, in a different kind. It's interconnection, interconnection through karma. It's what we do. It's not what we are that interconnects us. It's what we do to and for one another that creates the interconnections. Now, when we think about that, you think about the way beings act toward one another. It's not all that reassuring. Because we can be really nice to one another, we can be really horrible to one another, but these are the interconnections that we're creating. And so we have to be very careful. What this means is it puts more of an honest on us. We can't, can't, can't just say, well, because we're interconnected, and if you realize our interconnectedness, everything is going to be fine. We, we have to instead look at our actions. What are we doing? What is our motivation? What are our intentions? You have to be much more careful about the quality of your intention, because you can't trust that everything that's going to come up out of your mind is going to be good and beautiful and true. So it places more of an honest on us. At the same time, though, it makes us realize, you know, these, this interconnected web we've got here is very unstable. Because it depends on our actions toward other people, other people's actions toward us. And those are not all that reliable. And especially if the basic interrelationship is one of feeding, there are times when we feed nicely off of each other. And this is basically what a good friendship is. Okay, I'll, I'll feed nicely off of you, you feed nicely off of me, and we'll treat each other well. But those, those relationships are very unstable, and they don't last. Even the best relationships go at some point. And this is one of the reasons why the Buddha said this kind of interconnectedness is not really something to celebrate, but it's not something you learn how to use so you can get out of the system. And this is one of the kindest things you can do. I mean, you take what, your mouth out of the feeding chain. And at the same time, doing, and doing that, you show other people that it's possible to take themselves out of the feeding chain. That there, and this is what the Buddha's message on Nirvana is all about, is there is a happiness that doesn't require feeding. I wouldn't say you're living like the harmoniums, but it's more in that direction. It's, you're, the mind has its own source of strength inside, it's reached an element or reached a property that doesn't require feeding. Now, when we think about the implications of this as we, as we act on it, the whole idea that we are one seems to be a very compassionate teaching. It teach, would teach people, well, we have to care for one another, and we have to, and then we can expect that others will care for us, and it sounds very reassuring. But when you think about, especially the idea that we are all one, that has some implications that are not all that reassuring, and not all that helpful, especially for the idea of trying to find an end to suffering. Because if what you are is part of a larger oneness, one, you're not going to be able to get out. It's like your stomach suddenly deciding, I'm out of here. 
the stomach would die, you would die. Secondly, you don't have freedom of choice. There's some larger purpose for the larger oneness, and you're part of that purpose. Again, it would be like your stomach saying, I, you know, I'd rather be the liver for a while. And I think the livers get, they get they, they're the ones that are sending me all the messages. I'd like to move up the hierarchy. Well, it turns out, you know, there's, there's a lot of message sending back and forth going on. There's no one part of the organism that's really free. And secondly, if you were part of a larger oneness, your desire to put in enough suffering would have to take a back seat to whatever your role was in that larger oneness, a role that you hadn't decided on. You know, the stomachs don't, don't get to decide their role. They just made that way, and then they get these impulses from some other part of the body, and they send the food to the other part of the body. There's this interaction here, but nobody's really free, nobody really can get out of the system, and there's no possibility of putting an end to suffering. So the idea that teaching us that we are all one would be a compassionate teaching to give to somebody. You're basically denying what the Buddha said was the prime requisite for the idea that there is a path to end of suffering, i.e. that we have free will, we can choose the path. We can choose to be develop skillful qualities, we can choose to abandon unskillful qualities. If we're denied that freedom, the path doesn't make any sense. So that's one of the problems with oneness. The other is, um, if you teach people that we are all one, it, or excuse me, if you teach people that our interconnections are through karma, it actually provides a better foundation for compassionate action among other, other beings. Because again, if we're all part of one, you know, the original, one of the original statements of this was at a time in in Asia when, excuse me, it was in China, <laughs> when this particular view of reality was being presented to the Empress. And you say, okay, the, the universe is the way it is because it should be the way it is, therefore the fact that you are in power now is part of the, you know, it's written into the way things are, this should not be changed. Because that's just the way things are given the shape of oneness. The Empress liked to hear this. You know, the universe was conspiring to keep her as empress. You know. It was not a doctrine for social change. Now somehow it's become a doctrine for social change. Because we're all one, we should all work together and make things better. But if you look at the, your motivation for doing that, okay, we're working hard for the sake of what? I mean, we're not going to be around, especially in, in the modern version of oneness, where it's combined with a materialistic idea that there is no rebirth. We're somehow part of this organization, or this larger system that is going to get sloughed off as the system as a whole. We hope it gets better. What's your motivation? What do you care, as someone said, what do you care about posterity? What has posterity done for us? <laughs> but if you realize, okay, I'm coming back. You know, my, 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 my quest for awakening probably will not succeed in this lifetime. I've got other lifetimes I'm going to come back here. What kind of world do I want to come back to? And the belief that, I saw this recently in an article on Tricycle, the belief that there is a nirvana that's outside of samsara leads to the degradation of the environment. People say, well, there's something better than the world, so we're going to trash the world. That's not what it means. Nobody has fracked their way to nirvana. <laughs> if you're going to get out of the feeding system, you have to treat it really well. If you trash the feeding system, if you abuse the feeding system, you get sucked in more and more and more. You realize, if I'm going to get out of here, I have to treat things very, very well. And if our interconnections are through karma, it gives more specific advice on how you treat the system well. That there's the idea that, which is very common now in modern, modern Buddhism, which is that we don't need to teach on karma and rebirth, we don't need the precepts, all we have to do is have this belief in oneness and interconnectedness, and we will naturally know the compassionate thing to do. I haven't seen that work. 
what I have seen work is that people feel, okay, my actions make a difference. I have to be very careful what I, what I do. And I particularly have to be careful you know, if I'm going to be coming back to this world. If I waste the world, I'm going to come back to a wasted world. If I've been feeding on other beings unskillfully, I'm going to get fed on unskillfully. I've got to get my act together more, be more meticulous, more scrupulous about how I act. This allows for people to behave in ways that are actually more helpful to the world as they're planning to leave it. At the same time, in pulling yourself out of the system, you show other beings, okay, that they have the freedom of choice to pull themselves out as well. And you can give some advice on this is how it's done. And so that way the feeding system, even though it may continue going on, at least you've gotten that many more mouths out of the system. So that you have to look at, when you're going to be choosing a version of the Dharma, you have to say, okay, what are the, pra what are the practical consequences of this? Am I, being, am I grabbing onto sand, hoping that it's going to be salt, or have I actually found some salt? And we like to believe that our choices don't make much difference. You could buy a red Audi or you could buy a black Audi. Hope it doesn't make much difference. Except if you buy a red Audi, the police are more likely to catch you. <laughs> you speed. <laughs> but those, those kinds of choices don't make that much practical difference. But when we come to a religion, we, or come to the spiritual life, you can't say, okay, I'll just choose whatever path feels right to me. Because you have to look at what are the practical consequences of the beliefs that I'm, I'm taking on. What will this lead to do? What are the logical consequences, what are the practical consequences of choosing one version of the Dharma over another? Because especially now that this, the whole idea of true Dharma is being called into question. Um, just yesterday during the day long, someone said, well, I thought it was all one Dharma. And it's not. Different versions of the Dharma, if you practice them, will have different consequences. And so we have to look at, okay, what are the practical consequences of this? Am I willing to put in more effort in a more demanding dharma if I feel that the consequences are going to be better? And this is a choice that each of us has to make for ourselves. And the best way to make the choice, of course, is to be as honest with ourselves about, okay, this, this may sound nice to me, I may resonate with it, but there may be something wrong with this. I've got to exam examine it. So you look at the consequences of a particular belief system or a particular way of interpreting the Dharma and say, where does this lead? And then you make your choice. So those were my thoughts on the issue. Any questions, comments? I saw some concerned looks in the back of the room. <laughs> <laughs> Like at the mic. My question, since you're talking about uh, what the Buddha said, some of the teaching lineages really stress for the benefit of all beings mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that liberation is not complete unless it's for the benefit of all beings. And that makes me feel good, mm -hmm, you know. Mm -hmm. I don't hear a lot about that in this tradition, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and so is that, where does that come from? How does that Okay, well the question play? is, to what extent can you liberate all beings? Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean you can't try. Okay, well, but then the other question is, what would actually be for the benefit of all beings? It's because each of My us... My actions. Your actions, go they? To what extent do your actions actually help that other person see that they have to do the work themselves? And give them encouragement in doing that work, and give them advice, and give them support in doing that work. Okay. But, I mean, so where did that 
Where did this come well, from? Well, it came from the idea that we are all one. That somehow, if one of us really does the, whole, the work, it's going to spread out kind of like through the, the oneness of all being. But when you look at what the, the Buddha's analysis of why are we really suffering, it's this part of our, our reality that doesn't, that we don't share with one another. And that's why we're suffering. But I can spread that out or not. You can, well, through, again, through your actions toward another. Right. Our interconnection is not actions. through this being. Right. And I think the Buddha did the best thing that can be done. It's okay, he found the way out, showed everybody else, this is how it's done. Gave encouragement, and this is how I can do it. But he couldn't stay around to get everybody out. Because a, a lot of what happens is if you just say, okay, we're all going to stay here in, you know, say, okay, let's, let's just say that samsara is nirvana. You know? And that means, okay, just, we're going to stay here. But we're still in the system where everybody's feeding on one another. And this is, a, is this a good place to stay? Is that a compassionate thing to tell everybody? Okay, you're just going to stay here. It's like seeing people trying to sleep in the middle of the road. You say, okay, we're going to hand out pillows and blankets. As opposed to saying, hey, I'm going to show you the way out. You're going to have to do it yourself, but this is how it's done. Thank you for the very interesting lecture. Um, you mentioned uh, a sort of value judgment mm -hmm. talking about how goodness, essentially, mm -hmm. what is good for you may not be good for me. When we talk about oneness, uh, the greater good, um, it can't be good for everybody. Mm -hmm. you know, I think you were making that point that thing that might be good for me, if I get food, someone else might not, mm -hmm. and that's not good. Mm -hmm. and, and so my question is, what is good? Does it mean it's good that I got food and that other person didn't? Is, uh, is that the truth? I mean, how do we know what really is good in mm -hmm. the bigger context of, right. of uh, the universe unfolding and constantly changing mm -hmm. We can't stop that change. Right, it's right. going somewhere. Mm -hmm. um, and so, do we really know what is good? Okay. Well, from the Buddhist point of view, the, the universe is not going anywhere. It's changing, but it doesn't have a particular purpose. If, the, if we were part of a larger one that had a larger purpose, you know, that would have to be our purpose as well. But as you look around and said, this isn't going anywhere. It just kind of goes around in circles and goes around and around and around. And in the course of going around, we do a lot of damage to one another. He was saying it would be better if we could find that, because all of us want happiness. If we could find a happiness that doesn't harm anybody else, doesn't require that we feed on other beings, that would be good. This is why awakening is good. That you, you know, from for my sake, I can stop doing the suffering. I can stop creating the suffering that I'm creating for myself, and at the same time, stop creating the suffering that I'm imposing on other beings by the fact that I've got to feed. And one of the contemplations we have every day at the monastery is, we need food, clothing, shelter, and medicine. The fact that we're born is placing a huge, is placing a burden on the, on the world. Even if you're a vegetarian, the farmers who do the ve plant the vegetables, get them to the market, the people, you know, it's a, it's a long process of heavy work for a lot of people. Wouldn't it be better if I just took this mouth out of the system? Mm -hmm. That's what he's saying. And the Buddha's own vision of the world was fish fighting over that last little bit of water in a puddle of water that's dying, you know, that's drying up. And so maybe you do win and get that pot, that, that little bit of gulp of water, or maybe you say, okay, I will give that other fish the gulp of, gulp of water. But we're all going to die. 
and it doesn't end there. We come back, and we're just fighting over that, those little last bits of water. I was up in British Columbia a couple years back, and I was at a stream where salmon were coming up, and this is exactly what was happening. There was flop, flop, flopping up that last little bit of water, flopping over the bodies of the other dead salmon just to get that last bit of water. And in the meantime, the bears went on either side of the stream, scooping them up as they came by. And I, and I thought about this vision of the Buddha. I said, boy, that is really graphic. Yes, over here. Let's let the mic go ready. I'm just experiencing sudden onset of back pain this weekend. Um, thank you for coming, first of all. Um, I think, I, you know, I've studied population growth and dynamics. And I guess something that keeps coming back to me sometimes is, well, there are times when the population, of, the human population of the earth has actually dropped, as I'm sure you know, middle ages and some other times too. And obviously it's growing right now, but at some point it's gonna tank. So either we are being reborn as other beings or we're being reborn on other worlds. And I, I think you believe in other worlds mm -hmm. as part of the explanation of why their population might go up and down. Um, but I still feel like, well, this is the one I know about. Mm -hmm. Most likely, if I'm reborn, it's going to be here as something other than a human being. Um, and I'd like your thoughts on that. Also, one of the things I struggle with or I invite the thought of is, you know, during my meditation, can I sit and be receptive to a message of advice? And some people see that as the earth talking to them or life in general talking to them and guiding to them to what would be the best thing. And some people see it as God. Um, some Buddhists, I think, would see it as uh, uh, the Buddhist Sangha, the wise ones who've gone before. So I wonder what your thought about that is, is as a source of intention or choosing what to do. Because I think many of us are feeling like the earth is calling us mm -hmm. to protect it. Mm -hmm. We have two questions I saw. One is that other beings. You know, we have the chance to be reborn as other beings on other, many different levels. But the type of behavior we had toward this world is going to shape the world wherever we're born. So as I said, if we waste this world, we're going to, find, we're going to be reborn in a wasted world. And so you have to be, and so even, even though you may not be coming specifically back to this particular earth at this particular spot, still the type of world that you are leaving behind is the type of world you're going to be meeting wherever you go. Secondly, what comes into your concentration you have to test. You can't trust everything that comes into the silent mind. This is one of the lessons we talked about yesterday when we were talking about the forest tradition. And John Munn was out in the forest alone, and you know, he'd have these visions of various beings coming to him, giving advice on how to practice, and he realized pretty quickly if he believed everything that was coming into his quiet mind, he'd go crazy. So you have to take it and test it. 
And what this means is you look back, okay, what kind of state of mind is speaking to me? What kind of state of mind would be created by those actions? What would be my impact on the world out there through those actions? Everything has to be tested in action. Mm-hmm. Question? Thank you very much for the Dhamma talk. Um, I have two questions, and I'm not really sure if they're interrelated, but the first one is, um, then is the bodhisattva vow um, just a product of this sort of sasana of the Buddha, you know, the, the rise of that, and um, whether or not that, the, your answer to that then, what is the, this infinite seeding of Buddhas that, from, the, from the past and that the Buddha said will continue into the, into the future? What is the seeding then for this idea of going through all this work mm-hmm. to bring the teaching, to, to discover this teaching that has been forgotten? Well, um, you know, the Bodhisattva vow takes many shapes. I mean, the desire to become a Buddha is recognized in all the traditions of Buddhism as a valid vow. Just what it means varies from tradition to tradition. And you know, the one that I, I have most trouble with is the one that says, you know, I will not gain awakening until all the beings gain awakening. And the vision that keeps going through my head is, the movie theater is on fire, there's one exit, and the two bodhisattvas at the beginning of the door says, no, you first. And the other one says, no, you first. <laughs> <laughs> And as for the desire to become a Buddha, okay, again, the Buddha is not going to be saving all beings, but he is going to be saying, I want to keep the Dharma alive for my own purposes and also for the purposes of all the people that I can help who are willing to practice. You know, in the Theravada, they say that he taught everyone who was capable of being taught, which meant you know, there were some frogs and there were some other beings at that time which just were not capable. But maybe the next time around, the next Buddha will be able to pick up, help some of the remainder. There's a question back here. Yes, thank you for the, for the Dharma talk, too. I have two questions. I, too, don't know if they're related, mm-hmm. but just two confusions for me. Mm-hmm. Um, one is the metaphor of the, of the pond and the fish mm-hmm. feeding and become the fish that doesn't feed. I just, I guess I'm a little concrete. I mean, do I just starve? I, I don't know what that means. So I, I'd like no. you to explain that. And the other thing, the other question has to do with, um, I think you said that it's important to, the teaching of, on rebirth is an important teaching to motivate practice. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But to be honest, I don't, I don't have a view about rebirth. I'm not convinced of rebirth. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. What, why should I believe in rebirth? Okay, okay um, first question is, you get out of the system not by starving yourself, but you learn how to first you have to feed more skillfully. And this means looking for happiness in ways that are, are harmless to other beings. And one of the prime foods that the Buddha has you develop is, in, is inner food. In other words, learning how to take joy in your generosity, learning how to take joy in being virtuous, and then getting a sense of well-being that comes from getting the mind in concentration. His analogy of the different factors of the path. You know, he talks about this fortress at the edge of the, uh, the frontier. And you've got fortress walls, and you've got the soldiers, and you've got the gatekeeper, and all these other. The food is right concentration. This is what keeps your soldiers of right effort strong. This is what keeps the gatekeeper of right mindfulness 
you know, strong and alert, you've got to have the sense of nourishment that comes from within. So you're not feeding off of the other fish, you're not feeding off of the water, you've got, you've got a source of food inside that enables you to say no to a lot of temptations that you wouldn't be able to say no to otherwise. So you're not starving yourself. And then finally you get to this dimension through the practice of meditation together with the discernment on top of the concentration. There is a dimension that doesn't require feeding at all. And this Buddha says this again and again and again. The mind is without hunger. Not because it's denying the, the hunger, but it just, it doesn't, there's no need for hunger for this kind of happiness. There's a need for feeding. No need for feeding. As for rebirth, take it as a working hypothesis. For a year, you know, they have to have those programs that say, you know, for the next year, live as this, as if this last year were going to be your last. This year is going to be your last year. In what ways would you behave differently? You might take the same sort of process. Okay, live the next year as if you really believed in rebirth, and see what changes it would make in your behavior. And the Buddha never tries to prove. He can't prove to anybody else that it happens. He says this is something you actually see. The amount of time that you've been through this process, you don't see this and really see this for yourself until the first taste of awakening. Prior to that, he says, they don't use the word working hypothesis, but I think that's how it functions. We take it as a working hypothesis, and you think, okay, I'm, my behavior is going to influence the, what's going to happen to me after, after death. Is this going to change my behavior? Is this change the way I tr behave to the people around me? And then you can see, I mean, the Buddha said, you know, consciousness does not have to depend on the body. Consciousness can be depend on craving. Of course, craving then depends on consciousness, and the two can keep each other going for a long, long time. So, if you, if you have a materialistic view of the consciousness, it's just kind of an epiphenomenon of the fact you've got physical processes. That would lead you to behave in one way. You would have to keep these physical processes going as, more, as long as possible. But if you realize, okay, my consciousness doesn't have to depend on the existence of the body, and it's, the state that it's going to go to depends on my actions now. See what difference that would make. Because the Buddha is, one of the things I meant to say in the talk that I didn't mention so much is when you talk about inner oneness as being who we are, the Buddha very rarely talks about who you are. In fact, he says, avoid defining yourself. As soon as you define yourself, even if you define yourself as part of it in an infinite process, you're placing limitations on yourself. He says, focus more attention, less attention on what you are and more attention on what you're doing. Because this is what shapes the being you become. And then the way you continue feeding, and the way you continue doing on into the, on into the future. Anything else? Thank you. That was very interesting. And um, I also have two kind of questions, thoughts that came up through that. Everybody has two questions. Um, yeah, I know, just following the rule here. Um, well, so one, from my understanding of what you were saying, is that we are in interconnected, but we're not one, mm -hmm. um, which means, therefore, that you can pull yourself out mm -hmm. of it, you know, pull your mouth out. Um, but in so doing, I'm, I'm curious, your take between, you seem to say that that's like a compassionate action, mm -hmm. but it also could to me seem a little bit selfish, um, pulling yourself away from the rest of the group and not interacting. So I'm curious, one, about that, um, and two, if we are interconnected, we need to interact, right? Mm -hmm. So that's where it comes to our actions, and from my understanding, 
of karma. It's, it's more about your intentions than about the actual action. And I agree, we, we can't know like the, the good from the bad actions objectively, you know, but if we were to develop our intention behind the action and we believe our intention is good, isn't that enough? Well, answer your first question. People who have been led to awakening by another teacher come back and they bow down and say, I, know, I owe more to you than I owe to anybody else. So if you can teach that way to somebody else, it's not that everybody just kind of runs away and disappears. If you've ever been to Thailand and you see what happens, you know, someone is reputed to be awakened, people throng to that person because they find he's a very kind, he or she is a very kind person and maybe you know, can offer them help on the way out as well because this is what's been eating away at all of us is the fact that we're suffering. We all want happiness, but we keep doing things that cause our suffering. And if someone can show the, the way to stop doing that, you're going to feel that, okay, you owe more to that person than anybody else. So it's not just running away. You, you, before, you, before you get to run away, you've got to take care of a lot of people. And then the second one, um, the Buddha's teachings to his son is if you really want to build on your good intentions, you want to make them more than just good intentions, you want to make them skillful. And that means is as you're acting on an intention, first you ask yourself, what do I think I'm going to, what's going to be the result of this action? So, and then if it seems to be harmless, then you go ahead and do it. And then while you're doing it, are there any harmful, action, harmful results coming from this? If there are, you stop. And then it seems to be no problem, then you continue with it. Even, as you're, even when you're done with it, though, you look back at what were the long-term consequences. And so you're taking into consideration both original intention and the actual result. And then you take the lessons you've learned from that and you apply that the next time around. So your intentions become not just good intentions, but skillful intentions. So yeah, that's how you learn. Okay, just one more question, one more question. You mentioned about uh, counterfeit money Mm -hmm. and uh, counterfeit dharma. Mm -hmm. um, is there any source that you recommend to look into, to study, look at the history, or to learn and understand which, what is the real teaching of the Buddha? Okay, I'd start with the Pali Canon, because that seems to be our best record of what he taught. Um, and there's a, <laughs> a good history of Buddhism, that I would recommend. Of course, I was one of the writers. <laughs> it's called Buddhist Religions. Robinson, Johnson, and Tenisaro. And I can give you more kind of a background of what the history was as you went through various stages. But in terms of the Pali Canon, I'd say start with the Wings to Awakening. There's an anthology called the Wings to Awakening because the Buddha himself said these are the teachings that were central. Once you get those down, then it, it's, you can have something to measure other teachings against. Okay, that's it. Thank you. Mm -hmm.